This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. For more than a million people living in Gaza, the clock is ticking. I was one of the luckiest people to get a car and basically um, move from Gaza to southern Gaza with a car. On Friday, Israel's military ordered all residents of Gaza City and northern Gaza to leave for the southern end of the territory ahead of an expected ground invasion. Noor Harazin is a freelance journalist in Gaza. Her parents refused to leave Gaza City, but Harazin fled south with her husband and children. We saw hundreds of people taking this route on their uh, feet, and you're talking about tens of kilometers. And I saw women crying and children crying, and people are shocked. The evacuation order came as Israel intensified its bombardment of Gaza. This after the militant group Hamas launched a brutal surprise attack on Israel a week ago, which left at least 1,400 people dead. Here's Israeli military spokesman Daniel Hagari. They knew that this would happen as a result of their brutal and ruthless massacre in Israel. We're not fighting the people of Gaza the civilians, the residents. We are fighting the terrorist organization Hamas. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry, Israel's retaliation against Hamas has left more than 2,700 Palestinians dead, at least 9,000 injured. Dr. Hassam Abu Safiya at the Kamal Adwan Hospital in Gaza says he has seen things he never experienced in past wars. He says the hospital received a man with his child. They both died holding one another, the father holding his son. In another scene he witnessed, a mother died with her child on her chest. And Palestinians who are still trying to flee may have nowhere to go. They're basically held hostage on this tiny piece of land. The land, sea, and air borders are all tightly controlled by the Israeli regime. Hardly anyone goes in or out. Yara Hawari is a senior analyst of Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. This is as a result of decades of military occupation, but particularly in Gaza, um, 16 years of a brutal military siege. Palestinians in Gaza live in an open-air prison. It is day 10 of the Israel-Hamas war, and the threat of a ground invasion of Gaza is imminent. Tens of thousands of Palestinians are struggling to evacuate as closed borders hamper those efforts. Others refuse to leave the areas Israeli military forces say they will target. Coming up, we'll hear from two Palestinians who have family in the Gaza Strip. From NPR, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It is Monday, October 16th. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. 
Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. It's Consider This from NPR. On this podcast and on NPR's broadcast news programs, we are hearing a wide range of voices from Israel, from Gaza, and beyond on the turmoil unfolding in the Middle East. Today, we go to Jordan, where on Friday, thousands of people marched in support of Palestinians. This country borders Israel and the West Bank. Gaza is just 90 miles away. For Jordanian Palestinians with family in the Gaza Strip, that distance can feel painfully close and impossibly far, especially now. My colleague Ari Shapiro is in Amman, Jordan, and he spoke with two people who have relatives in the Gaza Strip. He takes it from here. Last night, I met up with two people who live in Amman and have relatives in the Gaza Strip. Hanan Mohammed is 35, Imad Shawa is 43. We were going to meet in Imad's apartment, but he said his three kids would make too much noise, so his neighbor let us sit in their elegant living room with tea and snacks while the air conditioning purred in the background. It felt so far removed from the chaos, violence, and pain of war. I asked Hanan and Imad what feeling they have experienced most over the last week. Right now, in this moment, when you ask me, it is fear for my loved ones. Mm -hmm. As you know, there is currently no safe place in Gaza. I actually have never felt this nervous or anxious or scared in my life. One crazy thought that I've been having all throughout this week, how horrible is it when I'm checking the news And then I find that there is a bombing, but it's like a different family name. And I feel relief. I felt relief because it's a different family name. Hmm. Ahmad, what for you has been the primary emotion you felt this last week? I would say it's been pretty confusing um, and it's still fresh. The family that I have there, we're on a WhatsApp group. They keep telling us, don't worry about us, we'll update you. You know, don't keep asking us how we're doing. And they they give us updates. So you're thinking about them and their children, uh, nephews and nieces and cousins, and they're a big group. Now basically moving together as as one, one giant group, some of them strangers, some of them refugees from different neighborhoods. Moving south, there's there's fifty people in a in a small house that has four mattresses. The fact that people don't have reliable electricity, so they can't reliably communicate on their phones the way they otherwise would, must be excruciating for loved ones who are far away, wishing for hourly or daily check-ins to know that their loved ones are safe. I mean, it's not even the top of the list of the worries. We're thinking about them, even if they do make it, and if they can even go back. They're going back to neighborhoods that have no more infrastructure. So even if your your apartment or house is standing, it's, pro, it's, it's among ruins where there's no sanitation, no running water, no electricity. I mean, we're talking 
millions of people. If you don't mind my asking, I understand you know someone who was killed in Gaza over the last week? Yes, my father's family. Um, I think it was October 8th um, when their house got bombed. There were 18 of them inside with kids and they all died. That was uh, the second day of the aggression. And just yesterday, another thing happened, the same thing. A house got bombed. There were almost 20 people in there. So from my father's family side, um, we know at least 40 who got killed. And from his mother's side, he said uh, probably the same amount. He said everyone speaking in the family here, we're not able to count them. But there is like a funeral house ongoing for the past three days here in Jordan. And, he, and everyone is speaking that uh, they have, might, have, might have reached above 100 a funeral house where people are just mourning those who've died in Gaza day after day after day as the numbers grow. A funeral house for those who martyred from our family. Just from your just family. Just from, yes. I'd like to hear your thoughts about being Jordanian-Palestinian specifically, because we are so geographically close to what is happening, and yet the distance is so great. Tell me what it means to you to sit where we are right now given what's happening. Especially since growing up uh, in Jordan as Palestinian, you know, originally, it was never uh, as encouraged to be too forthcoming, too patriotic for Palestine, growing up in the 80s and 90s for me. There was a, f- a lingering feeling of like, are, are we, you know, is, is there a feeling that we're like guests in Jordan, although we are citizens? There is a bit of a separation. It's a very thorny topic um, that would not please any government official listening to a Palestinian Jordanian complain about being in Jordan. (laughs) Hanan, can you tell us what it feels like to you to sit so geographically close to and yet so far removed from the ability to do anything as this situation unfolds as a Jordanian-Palestinian specifically? To me, I love Jordan. I consider Jordan my country. I love Palestine. I consider Palestine my country. So to me, both are my countries. As people of Palestinian origin, it's actually impossible for us to to return right now as the occupation stands. And it's extremely hard for us to visit. Um, I managed, thank God, I consider myself blessed that I have managed to see my my country while I'm still alive. So I once entered the West Bank and I once entered Gaza. And uh, it was the best experience of my life. I never felt more serene than I have felt there. I just want to say that one of the ugliest feelings I've ever felt was when I was led back or getting out of there. As you're escorted and you're just on the bus and you're just leaving and you're leaving the entire land behind you, and the people and everything they're going through. And then it felt like I was getting slapped a hundred times on the face, a thousand times on the face, actually. And then suddenly I was back in Amman where everyone was just normal and going to restaurants and going to the mall. And I felt completely dissociated for a week. I couldn't speak to my family. I couldn't just get back to my normal day-to-day life. it, It was very dissociating. After we've talked about these feelings of powerlessness and confusion and fear and guilt. Is there anything you're doing to help with all of that? Is there anything that you have found useful in this last week? 
in my own nature, I'm not someone who's, who likes to give in to despair. And uh, I'm an activist, I'm an organizer, I am, I've always been a rebel, so I'm always You're someone... wearing an ACDC shirt. <laughs> True. <laughs> <laughs> that is telling. <laughs> so there is sadness, and there is anger, there is fear, and there is hope. And then there is also pride. I am very proud of my people, of their non-stopping resistance, of their resilience. I am super proud of them. We, on the outside, get our strength and our hope from them. Yeah. Hanan Mohammed and Imad Shawa, thank you for sharing your experiences with us. I'm thinking of your families, and I hope that they are safe. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. That was Hanan Mohammed and Imad Shawa speaking with my colleague Ari Shapiro. And for more stories like the ones you hear on Consider This, check out All Things Considered, our afternoon news show. It's a mix of the deep dives you get here, along with more stories you'll want to hear. Visit npr.org slash allthingsconsidered to stream it live every afternoon. It's Consider This from NPR. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLLearning.com.